Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. He had been welcomed into the city with shouts of acclamation. Hosanna, they shouted, save us. Underlying this apparent popularity was the opposition and scheming of the Jewish leaders. From popular teacher and healer, Jesus is about to be treated like a criminal, crucified and placed in a tomb. As we remember the night before Jesus was killed, we see the betrayal of Jesus. A host, the master, becomes a servant. A meal celebrated and given new meaning. And a story of sorrow as a son seeks his father's will. The Passover festival was approaching. The Passover celebrated God's rescue of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt 1,500 years earlier. In particular, to remember that God had passed over and didn't kill the firstborn sons of the Israelites in the final plague. It was a time of celebration, joy, and remembering God's grace and mercy. But this Passover would be like no other. The religious leaders had a problem. Jesus was surrounded by crowds who flocked to him, followed him, listened to him, and loved him and all that he did. On the other hand, the religious elite were becoming more jealous and angrier and were growing in their hatred of him. But they were also afraid of the crowds. And so they couldn't just arrest Jesus in public because they feared the crowds would riot raising the unwanted attention of the Romans. They needed a different strategy. Then Satan entered Judas, one of the disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends, who had seen and heard everything, who had witnessed the miracles, the healings, the resurrections, the calming of the storm, the feeding of thousands who had also heard his teachings of peace, love, salvation, judgment and forgiveness. He was the instrument that Satan was going to use to try and take the Son of God to the grave. After all, Satan was Jesus' true enemy. But Judas also played his part. He wasn't taken over by the devil. Judas didn't resist him but let him in so that Jesus could be betrayed. What for? A few coins? It's hard to know his exact motivation. It may well be that Judas followed Jesus from selfish motives, expecting to receive a position of great status and prestige when Jesus came triumphantly to Jerusalem as Messiah. And when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, and it was clear that he was not going to be that kind of Messiah. Judas may have opened this door to Satan. And so in private, Judas and the chief priests and the teachers of the law masterminded a plan to arrest Jesus. We hear that the Jewish leaders were delighted. They were delighted to kill Jesus, even though he was innocent. They were delighted to kill Jesus, even though he was their long-awaited Messiah. 
they were delighted to kill Jesus even though he was God in flesh. They were delighted to kill Jesus even though he was the very one who had come to save them. While they have a plan for Jesus' crucifixion, they do not know that Jesus has a plan for salvation. Jesus sent Peter and John to make preparations for the meal and everything that he says goes to plan. Jerusalem would have literally been busting at the seams during the Passover. We've seen the eerie quietness of cities in lockdown during the last 12 months. Well, this would have been the exact opposite. Imagine trying to find a man carrying a water jar in the midst of all this busyness and commotion. Well, they do find him, and the room is just as Jesus said. Jesus has planned everything. The betrayal of Jesus isn't going to catch him by surprise. At least three times, Jesus had spoken about what would happen to him. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. Judas and the Jewish leaders believe their plan to kill Jesus is a done deal. But the real deal was Jesus' plan for salvation. This is God's plan for salvation. Peter and John are preparing the Passover meal to remember what God had already done. But Judas, he is preparing the true Passover lamb who will be crucified, who will become sin even though he was without sin and who will die the death we deserve. Many young people aspire to be the greatest the greatest sports person, the greatest celebrity, the greatest politician, the greatest business person. But when that statement, I am the greatest, is made by someone about themselves, it has an arrogance to it which can be difficult to hear. During the Passover meal, an argument broke out amongst the disciples about who was the greatest. They had been talking about who would betray Jesus, In other words, who would be the worst or the least. But this was quickly transformed into a discussion about their own fame and glory. Their concern for Jesus quickly dissipated into concern for themselves. Jesus stops his conversation abruptly and tells them what it really takes to be the greatest. Kings ruled with an iron fist, and even though they used their power over their people, They described themselves as benefactors. These rulers sought their own interest and only did good in order to receive more glory and honour. The disciples were to be different because the kingdom of God is different. The greatest should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Greatness is not measured by how rich, how powerful or how many people serve you but how you serve others. It's the opposite to the way the world works. Jesus will demonstrate this in the events of the next few days. The master will become the servant, the servant of all. Jesus said, I'm among you as the one who serves, for he is a true and humble servant. 
He came from heaven into the dirtiness and messiness of our world. He was born in a stable. He travelled from place to place with no home. He spent time with the marginalised and the outcasts of society. He will give himself over to be humiliated, to be whipped, to be mocked, to be spat on, to be nailed to the cross and to be killed on that cross in service of us and the Father's will. Jesus, the creator, will serve the creation and the king will serve his subjects. How do we respond to this? How do we allow God to serve us in Christ? It takes humility. We have to set aside our pride and selfishness. We have to give up the idea that we can save ourselves or earn salvation. We have to surrender our whole lives to God. When we do that, we enter God's kingdom where there is life eternal and the promise of hope freedom and joy that we receive by being in God's kingdom here on earth. Peter thought he had grasped all of this. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. He sounds committed, sounds on board, but he doesn't really understand what he's signing up for. Remaining faithful to Jesus will not be easy and will result in imprisonment and death. We know that Peter will stumble at the first hurdle. Jesus' followers will be tested, shaken, and their faith will be rocked, so that willpower alone will not be sufficient to resist the work of Satan. Jesus alone has the strength that his disciples needed, and we need today to stay true to him. Jesus is about to fulfill the prophecies of the suffering servant of Isaiah. He will be treated and tried as a criminal, even though he was innocent, and he will do that for us. When Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, as we read in the Gospel of John, it pointed to what he was about to do. The job of foot washing was usually performed by the lowest of servants. The host would never do this. Feet were dirty and smelly, making this job demoralising and demeaning. Today, it would be like changing a dirty nappy or unblocking a backed-up toilet. But on this night, Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The roles were completely reversed. Jesus was the host of the meal, and yet he became a servant and washed his disciples' feet. Jesus calls us to be the same, to serve God and to serve each other. After all the preparations and the events of the previous few days in Jerusalem, it was time to stop and recline for the Passover meal. The disciples would have expected a normal Passover meal, but perhaps the words of Jesus were ringing in their ears. 
the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Just maybe there was an expectation that Jesus was about to do something new. During the meal, Jesus took a cup. He gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The time for celebration and joy while Jesus was present with his disciples was coming to an end. A new time has come. Something new is here. A time when Jesus will be taken away and we would have to wait his coming again. Then he takes a loaf of bread, gives thanks, breaks it apart and gives it to his disciples and says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We can only imagine the reaction of the disciples. This was completely new. The Passover looked back to the release of the Israelites from bondage and slavery. Jesus made the Passover meal about him. He was about to release people from bondage to sin and death. Just like the bread, his body is going to be broken and killed. His body is going to be given on behalf of us. His body will be broken instead of ours. Salvation comes at a price. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just as the lambs were killed on that first Passover, Jesus would offer his life for ours. Then, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. God is establishing a new covenant with his people, a new promise. This promise is being made and sealed by Jesus' blood, which will be poured out on our behalf. On that first Passover, the Lamb's blood was poured out onto the doorways on behalf of the firstborn sons of the Israelites. Jesus' innocent blood will be shed for us. As we are freed from sin and death, we will be with Jesus when the kingdom of God comes. Whenever we celebrate this meal, we remember that Christ died for us and we proclaim this fact until he returns. This is God's plan for salvation. This is God's plan for us and the whole world and nothing can get in the way. Judas won't stop it. Jesus' arrest won't hold it back. Jesus' death on the cross won't destroy it and the grave can't contain him. This evening, as we recall this Last Supper, we recognise that when we eat the bread and drink the wine and look to Jesus' return, we don't just eat a small meal, but we humbly and honestly examine our lives against the life of Jesus. We confess that we have sinned and deserve judgment. When we eat the bread, we are reminded of Jesus' perfect, innocent body broken on our behalf. 
when we drink the wine, we are reminded of Jesus' blood which was spilt, taking the cup of judgment that we deserve and sealing a new promise of new life with him. We remember that his death was not the end of the story, just as our death is not the end, because we look.